Well, good morning again, Sterling College. I love that I get the opportunity to be here with, with you all today, and I love getting to just be on campus and connect with you all as students. Again, my name is Caleb Barrows, and I get the privilege of serving as the pastor up at King's Cross Church uh, in Lyons, about 10 minutes north of here. I have one quick shameless plug, though. We are starting a college cohort as a church where we want to simply invest in students who are eager to grow more in Jesus. So if you're looking for a mentoring, discipling kind of relationship so that you can grow in God, we would love to have you come out this Friday night at 9.30 p.m. at Rhonda Shuren's home. If you don't know where that's at, connect with some friends. Hopefully, you can find where that's at just here in Sterling. So that's 9.30 on Friday night. If you didn't know, that's right after Tori's show uh, at 7.30, Red Velvet, if you didn't hear that already. Um, but Tori's show right after that, 9.30 at Rhonda Shuren's home. We would love to talk more about this college cohort. A couple weeks ago, though, I was on a flight to South Carolina to do some vacation with my wife's family. It was great. But I was in the very back of the plane, in the back row, tucked in the corner pocket by the window in the back right. And I could see everyone in front of me and how they all have their phones out, they're playing games or watching videos, and nearly everyone has their window shade down, and they're just locked into their own lane. Everyone's lost in their own little world. And I look over to my left, and there's a guy, probably high school age, and he's taking photos outside the window while we're flying. And to be honest, my first reaction is more like that. Like, what a loser this guy is, right? Like, who's taking photos outside the window while you're flying? But then I caught a glimpse of one of his photos. And it was stunning. Like, just a quick little glimpse of what he was looking at. And I was like, actually, it is pretty beautiful out there, isn't it? And so I, I raise my window shade, and I look out, and it's just stunning. It's that time of night where the sun is setting, and there's these huge, massive storm clouds. And as the night went on, it just got darker and darker, and could see the cities underneath, and these storm clouds lit up by lightning. And I was just amazed at what I had almost missed, instead getting locked into my phone in some meaningless thing. And it was gorgeous to take in and look at and had nearly missed all of this. Again, so easy just to stay in our own lane, get locked on our phone and miss out what's right outside our window. And it hit me as well because everyone on that plane has a mindset that we've paid money for a ticket to get from Wichita to Charleston. We don't care about the flight. No one's there for that view. It's, it's just something you have to endure. You're not looking to enjoy it. But it was amazing to me that we're at 30,000 feet in the air. This is 10,000 feet higher than Mount Everest. People climb mountains for these kinds of views. People pay money to go up in hot air balloons to see these gorgeous landscapes. And freely, for everyone on that plane, is breathtaking views right outside their window but we just stay locked on our phones, in our lanes, ignoring, because we don't have the right mindset. It made me honestly to think about churches at times, and even here at chapel, that I know that this is a required credit for you to come and to attend, but I wonder if it's not easy to also just, if you will, keep your window shade down, get your phone out and get locked into your own lane, and rather than enjoying and learning in this time, to endure it, right? to just be on your phone and just get lost 
when maybe, I hope, throughout this year as you're coming and have to sit in these chapels, yes, but maybe throughout this year you would catch glimpses of God and his goodness that would amaze you. That instead you'd enter in with a heart and say, you know, I'm going to raise up the window shade and I'm going to actually look and take in this time. If I'm going to sit in chapel, let me behold and hear what has to be said. I know Jose is going to be bringing great truth for you all this year. So you come with a different mindset to hear and be amazed what you might learn that could be life-changing and transformative for you. And my goal here this morning is just to stir up the slightest bit of curiosity in your heart around Jesus and the gospel. I know that some of you are passionate followers of Jesus, yet many of you might not care about Jesus much at all. A little bit more ambiguous and not actually a deep desire to know God seems irrelevant to your life. So I want to stir up just a slight bit of curiosity, especially when I address this idea of faith, of faith. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 7. He's brilliant at telling stories. It's this little mini parable that he concludes this larger teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says in Matthew 7 that he says, whoever hears my words and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on a rock. And he says, there's a storm that comes, that the rain came down, and the streams rose up, and the wind blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall, Jesus said, because it was built on the rock. But, he says, whoever hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a person who built their house on the sand. And the same storm comes, the rain came down, the streams rose up, the wind blew and beat against that house. And it fell, Jesus said, with a great crash. And maybe you've heard this story before, but I want you to simply notice that Jesus is saying we are all building our lives on some foundation. It's unavoidable. All of us are building our life on some foundation. He he doesn't say that there's option A of building your life on the rock, option B of building your life on the sand, and then there's also option C of not building your life on anything. There is no option C. You have to build your life on some idea, some foundation, some belief system. In other words, faith is inevitable. It's inescapable. You are already putting your trust in some idea, some person, some belief system. And we're kind of trained in our culture today as Americans to view faith that's uh, something for religious people. It's something silly that people uh, entrust themselves to with a lack of evidence. That's how faith is commonly viewed in our culture. But I hope you see this, that faith is inevitable. It's inescapable. You cannot get away from it. You will build your life on something. Faith is inescapable. I know for some people it's okay. Faith is inescapable. If it's something we cannot get away from, then how do we decide what we're going to build our lives on? If I have to put my life on some foundation, how do I choose what I build my life on? 
Well, first of all, we have to see that you cannot choose based on the kind of motivations you might have in belief. You can't choose what's right and what's wrong based on the motivations that people have towards a belief. For instance, Sigmund Freud, the great psychoanalyst, he said that belief in religion was just wish fulfillment. That people want to believe in Christianity because it, it seems great, so that's why they believe it. Same with Karl Marx, he said that religion famously is the opium of the people. That people are led towards faith in Jesus just because it makes them feel better. So both of these thinkers rejected Christianity because they saw that people were just believing it because of certain what they saw as selfish motivations. It might be the same for you here. Again, I know many of you are not interested in Christianity and can see all the maybe selfish motivations that people have. That It's just something that weak people lean on to make themselves feel better and give them hope. And if you're a Christian with me here today, I hope you would own, yes, we are weak in so many ways. And yes, we do want to believe in Christianity. I have a desire for it to be true. I think it's beautiful and amazing. I long for it to be true. But I hope you also see that this is unavoidable, that no matter what you believe, you're going to have selfish motivations that lead you towards it. For instance, I love the honesty of uh, one philosopher named Thomas Nagel, who is a professor at New York University, he says this, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. Hear this. It's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I appreciate Thomas Nagel's brutal honesty here and saying that it's not just that he believes it to be true, he recognizes he has a desire for it not to be true. So same for some of you if you are resistant to Christianity. Maybe you just don't want the universe to be like that. Or maybe do you also see that you too have motivations that perhaps you want to just be free to do whatever you want without any thought of God or judgment or accountability? That all of us, Christian and non-Christian, no matter what we believe, we have motivations leading us to those things. So we can't judge what's right or wrong to believe based on motivations alone. We have to go deeper than that. So what's a better way to view this? Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, he draws out that it's much better if we compare beliefs. We need to weigh and assess them. And he gives us three guidelines I want to give you here this morning. First of all, is a belief internally consistent? Does it make sense within itself, or does it contradict the very things that it tries to teach? Is it internally consistent? Secondly, Tim Keller draws out, um, I think we have this on a slide here for you. Does it match our experience? Does it actually align with what we live and experience in our day-to-day -day lives? And thirdly, thirdly, does this belief need to borrow from others? So if we might believe something, but it doesn't explain everything in our world, we need to look to other worldviews, belief systems to fill in the gap that might indicate something is missing. 
So briefly this morning, I want to give you a reason why I think Christianity fulfills each one of these. We could say so much more about all of this. could take a very long time, but I want to give you a simple reason for each one why Christianity fulfills this. So first of all, it is internally consistent. One of the most important and most often doubted beliefs in Christianity is the reliability of Scripture. You heard me refer to it. I'm sure you'll hear Jose and other speakers bring out Scripture often. But for many in our world, it's, is Scripture even reliable? There's a deep question about whether it's historically true or whether or not it's just a legend that's been made up. But the Gospels, these biographies about Jesus, these eyewitness testimonies that we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have internal evidence within them that show themselves to be reliable and historically trustworthy. What do I mean? There's a massive study done back in 2002 where a group of researchers, they compiled a list of all the known used names in Palestine in the first century. This is where Jesus and the Gospels took place in Palestine, modern-day Israel, in the first century. And they got these from these Jewish burial boxes called ossuaries, where they would engrave someone's name on the burial box, other engravings on walls, or writings from the first, uh, first century. So they compile hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names. So they not only know every name used in the first century by the Jews, but also their frequency, which ones were the most popular names and how often were they used. This might not be fascinating to you, but a scholar named Richard Bauckham, who's now at Cambridge University, he took this data and compared it to what we have in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these biographies of Jesus, and the names used there. How do they match up? Stunningly, the top 10 most common names that all this research had revealed was exactly almost the exact same as what we find in the Gospels. For instance, the most common named, male name that Jews used in the first century was Simon. We see that Jesus had two disciples named Simon, and he also gave them nicknames, Simon the Zealot, and also another disciple, Simon Peter. But, but why does Jesus give some disciples nicknames and not other disciples nicknames? Well, suddenly this makes more sense because if Jesus is saying Simon, they're going to be like, which one? There's three or four of us here. Which Simon do you mean? This is why Jesus gave nicknames to some of his disciples. And it's not just one name. But again, the top ten male and female names are nearly identical. Why, why is this important? I hope you can see this is not something you can make up. It's not something you can create on your own. As people sometimes like to say, if the Gospels were legends that were made up through time over 100, 200 years that people slowly wrote down, they would not be able to replicate this ratio of names. For instance, if I asked you to give me right now the top 10 names in Kansas, how would you do? You might get one or two of the most common names in Kansas. There is no way you would give me the correct top 10 names. It just wouldn't happen. Even more, if I asked you to give me the top 10 names 100 years ago in Kansas, how would you do? Even if I gave you an, the internet and all the access you wanted for an hour, you, there's no way that you would compile the list correctly. The only way this can be achieved, hear me, 
is if you simply accurately report the people you come across and write down their names in your day, a large enough sample size, that's your best bet of getting this ratio correctly. This is what we see in the Gospels. They're simply walking around describing the life of Jesus and who he met as eyewitness and giving this accurate historical representation of the people there. So the Gospels internally reveal themselves to be reliable, inadvertently, not something you can make up. Again, there's so much more that could be said about internal consistency, but just one idea that hope gives you a bit more confidence and curiosity about the claims of Jesus, internally reliable. Secondly, though, it's not just that it's internally reliable, but it also matches our experience. It matches our experience. One of the great challenges for us today, understanding this deep longing in the human heart. I know every single person in this room, you have dreams of what you would love to accomplish and do and be one day. Every single person in this room. But I also still think that we could identify people who have achieved these dreams that we might secretly have in our hearts about what we want to one day do. People who have achieved those very dreams yet are still empty and full of dissatisfaction. That some of the most successful celebrities and richest billionaires are also some of the people with the most empty lives. And actually, there's a really honest interview with Tom Brady back in 2005. I just want you to listen to the first section of this interview and hear Tom Brady talk about his success. This is back in 2005 when he just had three Super Bowl rings, but hear how he describes his success. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean... Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is, me, I thank God. It's gotta be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it, I'm 27. And what else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew, I wish I knew. I mean, it's, I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. But there's a, I know, I love playing football and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. And different ways of expression, being around. I know what ultimately makes me happy are family and friends. And positive relationships with, with great people. And I think I get more out of that than anything. So again, Tom Brady, more open and honest than most people are willing to be, that he's achieved such success here just with three Super Bowl rings and says that at the end of the day, though, he's like, isn't there more? I thought, I thought it would be better than this. Where the interviewer asked, what do you think it is? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And it's not just Tom Brady alone, but again, many celebrities, other people with incredible power and success would testify that it does not satisfy their life. So hear me today. There is a longing in the human heart that cannot be satisfied by the things of this world. And people in the greatest success will again show this, but there is a longing in the human heart that cannot be satisfied by the things of this world. What will really match this experience for us then? Hear this again from the writer C.S. Lewis. He has this put so well. It says, creatures are not born with desires, unless satisfaction for those desires exist. 
A baby feels hungry while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire while there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So as we see so many people pursuing fame and pleasure and ambition and power, yet not finding the deep longing of their heart satisfied, it should raise a question that perhaps there's something more for us. And this is where, again, Christianity meets our experience, pointing us to something more. You were made for God and to know him and to enjoy him, and nothing will meet your heart like him. Nothing will meet your heart like him. So Christianity matches our experience in a unique way. Thirdly, though, here today, also Christianity needs to borrow the least from other belief systems. The last several centuries, in a great way, there's been a a growth and development of the idea of human rights. And this has been a massive gain for us around the world. Human rights are amazing. But it's been interesting that in the last several decades, there's been increasing resistance in certain areas of the world to the idea of human rights as just another example of Western imperialism. That we are pressing our ideas and our values on other people in the world. And this has been particularly disorienting for secular Westerners, where they believe that we should not impose our beliefs on other people. We should not force them to think or view things the way we do, yet at the same time, we don't want to compromise around freedom of speech or the equality of women or child slavery. We don't want to compromise on these things, yet we also don't want to force our beliefs on others, thinking they're universal and somehow need to be followed by all. It's led to a crisis in human rights. It's interesting, historians and academics have looked back, where did we get this idea in the first place? And increasingly realizing that Christianity is the foundation for human rights. Again, another quote here, this is from Friedrich Nietzsche. He is incomparably great at wording things. He says, the poison, he is not a fan of Christianity or human rights, by the way. He says, the poison of the doctrine of equal rights for all, it was Christianity that spread it most fundamentally. Out of the most secret nooks of bad instincts, Christianity has waged war unto death against all sense of respect and feeling of distance between man and man. So Nietzsche, he's not up for equality, he's up for power. And he recognizes his main enemy in ruining this idea of human rights is Christianity because that was the foundation. He's an opponent, and he has the honesty to recognize where it came from. So this might be surprising for some of you, but do you see that your value of equality, your value of human rights, is actually based on the beautiful truth that God created all people in his image. Man and woman, everyone bears his image. That's our foundation for human rights. What is more, that God came in Christ to give his very life for every man, woman, and child. What greater way could we see the value of every single person than that God himself gave his life for them? And this is why Christianity developed this idea that spread around the world of human rights. So if you value this kind of equality, if you value this kind of right that we want to share with the world, what's your foundation? 
Many secular thinkers have tried to ground it in human abilities, but it fails because not all abilities are shared by all people. And eventually some group is left out. What's going to ground that for everyone? Even the weakest and the most vulnerable and marginalized, how will you ground human rights? If you're not a follower of Jesus, do you need to borrow from Christian thought in order to ground these very fundamental and important ideas? So again, what needs to borrow the least? What matches our experience? What is internally consistent? Again, there's this beautiful truth as we have power in our world, and how do we best use this to take care of the marginalized? What better beautiful truth do we have than that God himself has come, the one of power, the one of authority, yet he lays down his rights, and he came to be crucified for those who had rejected him, for the most unworthy, for the most rebellious, God giving his life for the broken. If that kind of story is at the center of your heart, what kind of person is that going to make you? Would that not fill you with humility and compassion and kindness if this is at the center of how you view the world? Jesus Christ and him crucified, this is the power of the gospel. So again, I hope as you weigh out here in your college years, what are you believing? What is your life built on? Faith is unavoidable. It's not just a religious word for religious people. It is unavoidable. You're already building your life on something. What is that? How does that compare? And again, as I hope as you go through these chapels that you would raise up that window shade and you would behold the goodness of God, that you would see his greatness and that would compel your heart to know him more. If you all pray with me as Jose is going to wrap things up for us. Lord, you're full of truth. You're so worthy of our lives. But I know, Father, that you are often shrouded in, in so much as our entertainment leads us astray, as so many other ideas lead us astray, we don't really catch a glimpse of how good you are, how worthy you are. But I pray, Father, for these students, those that already know you, and especially for those that do not, that you begin to stir up their hearts to have this deep inner sight of what you've done for them. They'd really taste and see your love. It just wouldn't be some story from long ago or something they might have heard at church some Christmas, but it would be a deep, meaningful message that grabs their heart, seeing the beauty of what you have done for them and giving your very life. Show them their value. Show them their worth. Show them your love, Father. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.